Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Nina Cardona, and this is Nashville. It's never easy to lose a loved one. Losing that loved one suddenly and unexpectedly is even more difficult. But imagine that loss at the hands of the very people tasked to protect us. Our protectors killed someone in our family. That's a whole different type of grieving counseling. Now this is a new fear. Today, we've invited family members who have lost loved ones to police killings to better understand what the experience has been like for them. We'll find out what resources are available to them and what resources they wish they had. Plus, we'll meet one member of the Community Oversight Board who's advocating for change. I am Brandy Johnson Newell now. I am the sister of William Johnson Jr., a.k.a. Billy. I would say Billy's my protector brother. I have two big brothers. My brother Greg, he's a minister, he's a pastor, so he's my praying brother. Hey, God get him, let God handle it. Billy's where you at, I'll come get him. <laughs> so he was our protector of even his big sisters. He was the big brother that we would call on if something was going on or needed anything. She says he was their hug brother, a touchy-feely, caring person. Friends say he loved life and loved to travel. Billy served two terms in Iraq for the U.S. Army. He suffered with PTSD. It just changed him. He would just tell us how it was just so different, you know, sleeping out in the fields and um, how kids would have guns over there. And he was like, it's just stuff that you wouldn't imagine seeing. And after, after his stroke... Like, he stopped doing stuff that he loved. He really did. He stopped doing stuff that he loved. He would be a little paranoid sometimes, and it just changed his confidence and his um, character when it came to um, being secure in certain areas. He was just, yeah, he was just different. It was two years ago when Brandy got a strange phone call. I will never forget, it was a guy from Channel 2 News called. And he said, "Um, do you have anything that you want to say about what happened on the interstate last night? And I said, what are you you talking about? And he was like, is this Brandy Johnson? And I said, yes, this is Brandy Johnson, who is this? He said, whoever he was from Channel 2 News. And I said, what happened on the interstate? And he's like, you haven't heard anything that happened? I said, no, what, what are you talking about? He said, are you related to a William Johnson? And he was like, you need to call the police station. I said, what is going on? He was like, I'm sorry, and hung up the phone. That's how I found out. Found out that her brother Billy had been killed. It started late on a Thursday night 
when Metro Nashville police officer Daryl Osmond was walking his dog on a dark stretch of country road near the border with Ashland City. Minutes later, he was shot in the shoulder. The incident sent in motion a series of events that ended with police surrounding an SUV on I-440 and firing more than 40 bullets, killing the driver. What's crazy, my husband is a engineer with the Nashville Fire Department. The night before, he was like, babe, be careful. He was like, man, these people's going crazy out here tonight. He was like, it was a police-involved shooting on the interstate that you'll hear about in the morning. He was like, then somebody out North Nashville got shot, and then something else. He was like, man, these people are crazy. He was like, it's too much going on tonight. We have been going back to back, back to back. And I was like, well, you be careful, because you know you're out there. We had no clue that it was my brother Billy until the next morning. I remember I was going down the steps and my legs just went limp. I was like holding onto the rail because I just knew like my parents were going to lose it. Her brother was 48. There are a lot of questions around what actually went down that night. The off-duty officer who was shot in the shoulder on that dark country road ran from the scene and said the suspect drove off. The family wondered if they got the wrong car. The Ford Flex police spotted was 10 miles away from the incident, eight minutes after the officer's 911 call. They wondered if Billy sped away because the chase triggered his PTSD. They wondered if the police got the wrong man. Months later, 911 tape revealed that the officer said three times that the suspect was a white man. William Johnson Jr. is black. Now, TBI investigated the case and ruled it was justified. It's important to note there was no footage. This was before MNPD had body cameras and that it all went down just days before George Floyd was murdered by a Minnesota police officer. The case was quickly forgotten, but not for Billy's family. We love him. We miss him. We want to see what was he doing. You all have his last moments. We don't have that. We don't, like, why wouldn't you share that? And it's just like, they don't care. It's like, okay, it's another black man that's gone and keep it pushing. But he wasn't anyone out here, some criminal or anything like that. You know, he was a father. He was a brother. He was a son. He was a veteran. We read the paper. We see what they done to my brother. So we have to imagine, was he scared? My mom said, was he crying? He was headed towards me. I could tell the way he was, the direction he was going. He was trying to come to his safe place. That's what my mom says. To this day, Almost exactly two years from the day her brother was killed, Brandy still has so many questions. Did you try to help him at all? So now they're the victims. And now here he is, he's dead. What did you do to try to help him at all? He arrived in the morgue handcuffed. with his arms behind his back. That's how he arrived at the morgue. 
So you already knew he was dead on the ground out there. And you still handcuffed him. And that's how you took his body to the morgue. So it don't sound like to me that you tried to help him at all. Their family had never experienced anything like this. They were all raised in the church. There are firefighters in the family. But this, it changed everything. So now we have to trust these people who took my family members. So how I know when you pull me over, you're not going to shoot me for something if I don't move how you think I should move. So now it's a new fear of, of police. Can I drive to a lighted area or are they going to kill me because I won't stop because I'm trying to get somewhere lighted because now I don't trust the police how I used to. You took my brother. Our protectors killed someone in our family. That's a whole different type of grieving counseling. It's a whole different type. Because now, now this is a new fear. So now we're scared at the gas station when somebody walk up or a teenager walk up or something. Then guess what? You're scared when the police come too. At this point, two years later, Brandy is less hung up on whether or not he shot the officer, which she doesn't think he did. And to be clear, we're not here today to reopen that case. What she's more hung up on is what happened after he was killed for her family as they grieved. Or more accurately, what didn't happen? I don't think anything can be done on my brother's case, but what can they do different for the next family that encounters this? It needs to be some type of person that works with these families with police-involved shootings that is the contact person. They should have some type of committee because other than that, all you can do is just call these numbers and then when they stop answering these calls, if you don't have a lawyer, then they don't care nothing about you. They don't care about your loved one that's gone. They don't care how you're doing after your loved one is gone. Nobody has called. Nobody has sent my mom or my dad a card. Nobody has told us, hey, this is going on. You all are welcome. We do this for grieving families. They should have something for families with involved police shootings. Right or wrong, right or wrong, the person that died is still human. And you don't know what was going on with them at that time. So why wouldn't you have a committee to help these families through this process? Because it's a process. Just because you bury somebody, it doesn't stop there. Sometimes I'll, a song would come on or a thought, and you would think he just died that day. How the tears and how the sadness and how I'm telling my husband, like, I just don't want to get up today. Like, I'm just, when I get off of work, I work from home. When I get off of work, I just get in my bed. Or I'll say, I just can't stop crying today. I keep thinking about Billy. And then sometimes it's like I can hear his voice, and then sometimes it's like I can't, I, I have to try to get my thought. Like, my brother is gone, and nobody has shown us any type of care or passion. I would love to start something to help families who lose family members with a police involved, it should be some type of support group. 
some something that we can do because it's different than just a different crime. It's different because these are people that you trust. These are people that you're supposed to depend on and they take your family member's life. Special thanks to our former criminal justice reporter, Samantha Max, for conducting this interview. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the resources that are currently available to those who've lost their loved ones to police killings and meet one member of the Community Oversight Board who's working to make a change. Stay with us. This is Nashville. Nina Cardona, and this is Nashville. Anytime someone is killed, their loved ones are left with an incredible burden, emotional, financial. They need a lot of help. But when the police are the ones who did the killing, all too often the victims' families are left feeling pushed aside and forgotten instead. Before the break, we heard from Brandy Johnson Newble, whose brother William Johnson Jr. was killed by police two years ago as of last weekend. She said her family needed help and she wishes more support had been available to her. My next guests are working to provide that kind of support. Sheila Clemens Lee founded Mothers Over Murder after police killed her son, Jacques Clemens. And Jill Fetchard is a member of Nashville's Community Oversight Board who is working to provide more resources for families after police killings. Welcome to both of you, and thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Jill, I'd like to start with you. First off, what exactly is the Community Oversight Board? The Community Oversight Board is a police accountability board. Um, it's made up of 11 members from the community. Um, there's a staff um, which does all of the um, hands-on work. Um, that's We call them the MNCO. Um, and I'm the executive director of the board, um, as well as I uh, run the day-to-day -day operations for the board. And when you say accountability, what does that mean? Accountability is that we are looking to, number one, hold the police accountable for misconduct complaints um, that citizens can, um, you know, they can call us and um, make a complaint. We also are looking to change policy for the for the police departments. We're looking at their policies and just how they operate in general within the, the, the compounds of the city. Um, and so those are the, the two main ways that we hold them accountable. Of course, accountability means uh, different things for different people. Right. I think we hear about the COB the most when there has been a big incident and we hear that you're looking into it. How did you become focused on finding ways that the board can assist these families after their family members are killed by the police? Yeah, you know, last year we had a record number of police shootings and killings in this city. And, you know, after one and then two and then three, um, I just began to see where we had a, a, a real deficit in what we could do to provide some type of relief and help to the families of people who have been killed um, in police incidents. Um, and so we began to, I began to realize and with my team that 
that um, we needed some social services um, that we weren't able, number one, we didn't have the funding for it. We knew that it was a deficit that we were missing and how we were able to um, assist when people called about, you know, uh, these uh, police shootings. Um, those are in, in for police shootings, they're always director initiated. So sometimes we never hear from the family. I just have made that a, a, a particular procedure in our office. And so, you know, if we hadn't heard from a family member, um, we still are going to investigate those types of shootings, um, anything dealing with type, uh, any type of use of force. And so I realized that I did not have the capacity on a personal level um, to help walk them through um, the things that they were experiencing. I, I'm not a grief counselor. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, hearing, you know, the anguish that people were experiencing when they called me, you know, and I had been referring them to Miss Sheila Lee's um, organization because I thought that they were able to provide the kind of um uh, support um, that I just on a personal level would not be able to uh, provide for them. And so I realized that we did not have any uh, anything in place to deal with um, family members, loved ones um, of those who are, I think, survivors of police killings. What do you feel hearing Brandy's story that we just listened to a few minutes ago? Yeah, I feel a lot of um, compassion for her. Um, you know, for each one, each woman here. I'm a mother. I have two sons. Um, of course, I'm married. I mean, I think about it could be my own family that was experiencing that, and what kind of services would would I be looking for? And you know, they're not there. Um, you know, the police department has uh, they have s services set in place behavioral treatment and behavioral services for officers who are um, involved in those shootings. But the people who are on the on the other end of that have no um, no support. You mentioned that you often refer people to nonprofits like Mothers Over Murder and, and Sheila. You are here. You work with you. You run that group. You're, you're the person to talk to. What do you do first when you get that call? Well, first of all, let me make a correction. I'm not the founder of oh, okay. Mothers Over Murder. That's Clemmie Greenlee. However, I am the director of Mothers Over Murder. My apologies. It's okay. Um, when we get these calls, you know, it's first and foremost, it's like this is our child all over again. Mm -hmm. You know, you go through the the emotions and everything. And then, you know, I have to let them know that they're not alone. There is some someone out here that understands the pain that you're going through, uh, especially when it's an officer-involved shooting. Um, I felt everything that Brandy was saying. You know, my mind was just running, just listening to her her story, and a lot of it I didn't even know. Mm. And it, it, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, um, we do expect for these officers to protect us and not murder us. I don't say kill, I say murder. Mm. There's a big difference. Of course, Let's just be real clear for anybody who doesn't know much of your story. 
you came to this work quite unfortunately after your own son, Jacques, was in your words murdered by police officer Josh Lippert in 2017. And I know it can't be easy to think back on that time, but when that happened, do you feel like you got the support you needed? No. I didn't get the support at all. I didn't know anyone who had experienced a family member being killed. I'm sorry, being murdered by the police. At that time, you know, as people came to meet me and support my family, I've learned that there were several people that was in that circle who family members had been murdered by the police mm-hmm. and nothing had been done. Um, I didn't get the support from the city. I didn't get the support from the um, the council members, the pastors, none of that. And that's one of the things that drew me to Miss Vicki Hambrick is because she needed to know when her son Daniel was murdered that there was someone that knew exactly how she felt. What do you think people in your situation need the most from the city? What we need the most is for them to show some type of compassion. Quit saying that these shootings are justified in a matter of hours. Um, Quit turning our children into suspects when they're the victims. You know, they're, they're quick to do that. You know, and my thing is, you want to drag up their past, but it wasn't their past that got them murdered. And at the same time, you need to expose that officer's record. So you are looking for support in the investigation? In the investigations, uh, with, with families, because they don't, they don't contact the family. You know, in my situation, then it was Chief Anderson and then Mayor Megan Berry. Well, n- nobody in either department contacted my family or anything. But what they did was they got together to form a closed-door meeting with us. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you know, oh, well, I too have a son. This is Mayor Megan Berry at the time, and I know how you feel. I had to tell her, no, you don't know how I feel because your son is still alive and mine is not. But why do it behind closed doors? You publicly announced that this shooting was justified. You publicly announced that it was Jacquees's fault. So why wouldn't you publicly announce your condolences? Right. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona, filling in for your host, Khalil Ekulona. And we're talking this hour about the resources available to families who have lost their loved ones to police killings. 
Jill, thinking about what is currently available here in Nashville, I'm curious how it compares to other cities across the U.S. You know, there aren't any real resources um, when it's involving uh, police accountability and resources for victims of or survivors of police killings. Uh, and I just think that's unfortunate. I mean, you know, I think it's, I, I did want to address something that Miss Lee said. I think it is really cruel and unusual punishment for v- survivors not to know what happened to their loved one. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that the police department has to do a better job at making certain that they have all the information so that they're not years later still wondering what happened. I, I just don't. That to me is a problem. Um, I, in looking across the country, at what was ha- is happening in regards to having survivorship um, funds or um, resources. I mean, it's it's dismal. Like it, it, there's hardly anything. No one ever really addresses that. And so because of that, I think that Nashville has this unique opportunity to look at what is happening. We had 10 shootings last year. Um, Some of those people have reached out. Some of the survivors have reached out. Some haven't. But when I think about the loss of a loved one, and and for instance, if you're talking about Miss Lee's son, he was a father, right? What, you know, it could be his children they could have come in with Miss Lee or uh, his children's mothers. He was the sole, he could have been the sole provider for their families. Right. You know, what do we do as a city to make them whole? How do we make certain that they are getting uh, connected to the right uh Groups that, that give them some trauma informed, um, some trauma informed approaches, um, who are listening to them, who provide therapy for them, um, and also when you look at like trying to restore them whole and holistically, um, yeah, I think that we have this unique opportunity with the COB to be able to make that um, happen for them. As you have been advocating for more resources, what obstacles have you faced? Well, um, just like, for instance, in this budget, right, this budget asks, we asked for a social worker, a senior social worker, someone who could triage the cases as they come in and speak to survivors and connect them with the right resources. And the, and the mayor, he, it was in our budget request, and the mayor's administration did not give us a social worker. They did not approve that. They approved more investigators. They approved an administrative service manager, and they approved a, you know, uh, some, a specialist for license plate readers. And I have been advocating for a social worker for the last eight or nine months. And it just shows that it's it may not be the most important thing to them, but it was a crucial position for our office. And to not include that in this budget request didn't make sense to me. Yeah. This is bigger than just providing support. It is. Um, what changes would you like to see when it comes to how we handle police accountability? Well, like I said, I think, it, it, you know, even when the first thing, when there's a police shooting, um, how the notification is made, there's no way that Brandy should have gotten a notification um, through media, through right. the news. Like to me, and we've had, we have um, had, um, that's one on my list to do because I've had multiple people call and say that they had some notification issues. I think that that is a big problem. I mean, it's, 
it really has to, you have to respect the process and respect people um, to make certain that when they, they are handled with care, when their loved one is fatally shot and killed by the police. Um, I, so that's one thing I think. I think making certain that um, when I think about police accountability, I think of it, um, it's a structural issue. Um, it's an organizational structure issue, right? There's been that with the Metro Police Department for a very long time under multiple um, chiefs of police. This is not a new thing. Um, and so we have to do some digging up and uprooting some of the things that have happened um, and right some wrongs. And um, I think that we are on that path. We are doing it. It's it, it, it's it's a little step by step. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we're on the right. Um, we're in the right direction um, to start making um, more policy changes because it really starts with their policies. Um, and so they have worked on their use of force policy. I think it needs more work. We're going to be releasing a report soon on use of force. Um, and so and looking and see what they're doing across the nation, like what is other cities who are getting it right doing? And that's what we've been doing. What's your next step with the Community Oversight Board? Oh, wow. We have so many things. Um, we Hopefully, with this budget request, that the um, council will um, look at our budget again and give us those positions that we need so that we can be more impactful with the community um, in the work that we're doing. Um, so we are working towards some significant policy changes. And... Um, I think that those policy changes, this, the first one is the one that's on the table, as, as a matter of fact, will be approved tonight, is in regard to, um, as we do complaints, having the same definitions, mm. um, because we have uh, some of our... Um, some of our recommendations to the chief of police just have not been accepted. And so if you're trying to build trust within the community and the, if the police department really wants to do that, then they have to start taking in our recommendations that the board is issuing, uh, they have to start um, actually receiving those, accepting those, and implementing those recommendations. That's the first step. Right. That shows trust. That builds trust within the community. That shows that you respect this this process. Um, and hopefully uh, today when, we, when, when the board votes on that and we send that to them, that the that the chief of police would implement those policy changes. To get on the same page there. Well, that's Jill Fitcher, director of the Metro Community Oversight Board. Jill, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll invite women who've lost family to police killings to share their experiences of grief and healing. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. Cardona, and this is Nashville. More than 11 people have been shot by Nashville police since 2019 when the city's Community Oversight Board was officially formed. It's a civilian-run agency dedicated to investigating the police department. We just heard Jill Fitcher who gets calls from loved ones desperate for information, all while grieving the loss. She says there's just not enough support available for these families. And my next guests know that all too well. I'd like to welcome Vicki Hambrick and Brandy Johnson-Newble. 
into the conversation. Hello. Hello. Thank you both for being here today. Vicki, your son, Daniel Hambrook, was shot and killed by MNPD officer Andrew Delkey in 2018. First of all, I am so sorry for your loss. Thank you. Can you tell me a little about your son? Dane was my miracle baby. Mm -hmm. He was raised in church. I always thought he was going to be a pastor. He was dressed like a pastor. He acted like a pastor. Every time church started or after church, he always had his handkerchief and his Bible up under his hand, up under his arm. Mm. And every time the pastor read the scripture, he stood up and read it with him. And so my father used to say that every time he seen him, that's my little pastor. Hello, pastor. And he'll say, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Wave his handkerchief. Just thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, like you sweating and stuff. That's a sweet memory. And so um, he did the sound system in church when he got older. Then he played uh, for Bardo Eagles for Little League. Then he, when he got a, a little older, he played for uh, White's Creek. And he was just my miracle baby because he helped me all the time. Took me around to family member houses, helped me pay my bills, and did a lot for me. And wasn't ashamed of his mother, his disabled mother. He never did tell nobody, well, no, that's not my mother. That's my friend or that's my auntie. He always said I was his mother, and I thank God for that. He uh, said I was his mother. I could just feel your pride in him and your love for him. Yes, I really love my son. For those of us who haven't experienced this kind of loss, I know it is impossible for us to understand what it feels like. But how did losing Daniel this way feel for you? It's a heartbroken. I lost my mother. I lost my father. I lost one of my sisters. But when you lose a child, it's real a heartbroken. Your heart broken out in pieces like a Pulitzer. And it's real, real heartbroken. Even though I don't cry every night, I cry some nights. And then I look at my phone and look at his picture, or thinking he gonna call me, I just break down and cry. I know a birthday coming up, you know, and I get emotional about that because he's not here to celebrate with me on that birthday. Brandy, we are pretty much at the two year anniversary of your brother's death. How are you doing right now? It's the difference. See a mom talk about the child. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it just makes me sad for her. Yeah. I'm sorry. 
And I, I, I'm sorry, I, 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 I should have seen you weren't quite ready for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hadn't. Like, you know, you, you hear people's stories on the news and stuff. And, yeah. and, of course, you know, I'm there with my parents. But, you know, just to hear her say, you know, she thanked God for her child. And he was never ashamed of her. And, you know, you just never know what type of voids um, this caused people. You know, people outside, you know, see your family members one way. But mothers and siblings are going to see them, you know, a whole total different way. Right. So it just makes me sad for her. From what we heard from you earlier, it sounded like your brother was a pretty loving guy. Too. Oh, Billy was off the chain. <laughs> he was so funny. He was so um, comical, but he was also, like I say, he was my um, protecting brother, but he was also um, a licensed massage ther- therapist. So sometimes for Mother's Day, he would bring his table and he would give us all uh, massages and he would massage our feet and he didn't care and he gave the best hugs. Like you could just tell he loved you when he gave hugs. So, well, it sounds yeah. like he gave a special kind of help for a living. Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> he did that. He did. Yeah, he was awesome. He really was. Um, you know, as you shared earlier in the show, this is no ordinary loss mm-hmm. that you are suffering. Um, and as you continue to grieve, you also have to grapple with not feeling safe anymore. And that is something we also heard from Tangi Curtis. Her daughter, Nicole, or Nika Holbert, was killed by a Metro Police trainee last year. And uh, we have some audio of her here, Tangi, saying that she notices the police more now and she finds it unsettling. I feel fear. I mean, that's just being, I'm being honest, I kind of was scared. I mean, after seeing what happened to my daughter, when I see, you know, them, I don't know, it just, that might have been what caused me to start having the anxiety that I have now. Um, more often, it's like every time I saw, you know, when it would just, I don't know, it made me feel fear. Brandy, how does it feel to know that your loved one was not just killed, but killed by police? Oh, yeah, I I totally agree with what she was saying. You do pay attention more to the police, and it's like, if I'm speeding, you're not supposed to speed. But, you know, if you do, you're like, oh, let me shut down, let me slow down. Or um, So, yeah, I totally get that. It's a, different, um, it's a different reference for them now, but I wouldn't say it's the best reference. It's more of a fear, a fear base. When that's who you're supposed to, something happened, you're supposed to call them, oh, danger, but now it's like, oh, uh, you can't call the husband because you don't know if they're going to come and kill, kill if they, you call on your husband or something go on, you know. So it's just, um, yeah, it's a different, you look at them different. And it's sad because they're not all bad, but you don't know which one is. Right. So you got to be on guard with all of them. Uh-huh. How, do uh-huh. you, how do you cope with the feeling? You just have to. I mean, you you living in society, so that's a part of it. So you just try to do your best to do what they say is right <laughs> so mm-hmm. you don't have to involve them in anything. When we spoke with Tangie, she also talked about wrestling with feelings of guilt, like it was somehow her fault. She called me on the phone and I didn't get there in time. You know, she called me and the officer knew I was coming. And so I guess I blame myself, you know, for what happened to her because I didn't get there, you know, quick enough. That's what I was thinking. So um, the therapist told me, you know, 
that I don't need to blame myself, you know, for it. I'm not the one that caused her death, that it was the officer. So like the like I said, the ther- the therapy has kind of helped me to where I'm like looking at them like I'm not afraid of you anymore because what your officer done was wrong. Um it wasn't my fault. Tangie told us she wishes she'd gotten into therapy sooner. It took about a year for her to start. And Vicki, I understand that you just started seeing a therapist for the first time since Daniel's death. How are you feeling about, about that, about starting therapy? I feel good. Uh, it's making me feel more relaxed than, than what I was at first because I had a lot of anger and hate in me. And it makes me kind of trust people more than what I was at first. So I just had to take it one day at a time. Yeah. Now, you mentioned before that the Daniel helped you out just, you know, in, in just kind of the logistics of everyday life quite a lot. Um, how have you found the help that you need since his death? Through the um, Miss Sheila and the moms over murder, I want to thank Miss Sheila because she called me almost every day, or if she don't call me every day, she called me every other day to make sure I'm okay or do I need anything. If I don't call her, she'll call me, daughter. You haven't called me and pops <laughs> to see how we doing. Are you okay? Do you need anything? And I want to thank her for that. Even though whatever I'm going through or I'm mad at somebody or whatever, or if I'm in my feelings, she'll still call me. So I want to thank her for that. Even though if don't nobody else call me, she will, her and Pops. Well, speaking of Sheila, Sheila Clemensley is still with us. And as we mentioned earlier, your own son was killed by police in 2017. We want, what do you want people to know about what this kind of loss is like? This loss is very devastating, not just to me, but you got the siblings, you got the children. It, it affects the whole family in different ways. You know, um, with, with my other children, Jacquees was their hero. He was their only brother. He was their protector, their provider. And that was suddenly taken from them. You know, Jacquees was the only guy in the house. So he was the protector of his family. And then when he had children, you know, he understood the love between a child and a parent. And he became their protector and their provider. And not only his two biological children, but there were six other children that he was taking care of Mm. that also suffered a great loss as well. And 
it's just ripple upon ripple. It is. It is. And it's very heartbreaking. You find your the most times with me, it hits me when I'm still. Mm. After my day is done and I get home and all you have to do is just start, your mind starts wondering. And what ifs, mm-hmm. right. you know, and through therapy, you know, I, I'm a, I also do therapy, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll tell anybody, don't be ashamed to go to therapy. You know, um, it has helped me a lot. And and I have to help myself in order to help these mothers. Well, and let, let's talk about that. You actually went on to help others dealing with the same kind of loss. What gave you the courage and the motivation to take that step? Um, before Jacquees was killed, I had started asking God, what is my purpose? Show me. Oh, wow my purpose and after he was killed and it's like he was leading me to these mothers you know not only mothers who suffered the loss from the hands of the police but other mothers who have also lost the child due to gun other gun violence suicide Drug overdose. I mean, it goes on and on. It just doesn't stop. Because at the end of the day, we all share one thing in common, and that's the loss of our children. And I will tell all of them, I don't care what time of day or night that you feel like you need to talk. Call me. And a lot of them be like, well, we don't want to do that because it's late night. But I'm telling you to call me because I know when it hits you. And, you know, you have all these emotions going on inside of you. The You, you blame yourself, the guilt. I mean, the, the your anxiety kicks up. Mm-hmm. The tears you can't control. I mean, your heart is just pounding. And you know you 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 want your child, you just want them, you know. And even though you have other children, and I had to realize that in therapy as well, I have other children. But it's just that void, and nobody's going to be able to take that away. Right. Thankfully, you know, my faith keeps me going and it's my faith that keeps me helping other mothers and fathers because they're our fathers we have to realize that the fathers they suffer too you know uh at an event in arkansas you know my my husband he travels with us a lot and he had to make it plain to us that hey what about us dads right we suffer too and sisters, yeah. Brandy, who have you been able to talk to? Who's been able, your your support? Oh, I've been in counseling. No. <laughs> but um, I also connected with Ms. Sheila in the beginning. And then um, my family, um, church members, 
coworkers, friends, my husband, I talked to him. It's crazy. Um, he lost a brother seven months before I did. His brother had a um, heart attack. And then seven months later, I lost my husband. Oh my so um, we were both, we both lost siblings in a matter of seven months. So I'm so sorry. Yeah, thank you. So it was like um, he was able to help um, navigate mm-hmm. my myself and my siblings like on... We said it's a new normal with the void. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's who I really, that's who I depend on the most um, through this process. And then, like I say, counseling, you kind of talk about everything and you just see how it all kind of connects with the change in you and just the change in your day-to-day life. Vicki, what is the difference for you um, in finding that support from somebody who's just coming and saying, you know, I just want to help you. I don't know what this is like. I want to help you. And having that close relationship that you've developed with Sheila, who knows exactly what you're going through. It makes me feel good. You know, she uh, she kept calling me and saying, "We are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. And uh, then... Uh, I was just in my feelings and in a dark room and just didn't want to be by nobody at the time. Then uh, it seemed like God had me to open up to her and go on and talk to her to let her know that I'm going to be all right, and she's going to be there for me. And like I said, I want to thank her for that because she didn't have to be there for me. Well, and I want to thank all of you. Brandy Johnson-Newble, Sheila Clemensley, Vicki Hambrick. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank, thank you. you for having me. And we want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour as well. It has been a pleasure filling in. Tomorrow, your host, Khalil Ekulona, is back. It is an episode all about bucket lists. Tune in for some lighthearted adventure. It's, we need that every now and then. This is Nashville. It is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to our former criminal justice reporter, Samantha Max. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.